As we scan the scriptures, we actually find several stories about saints who glorified God with their worldly wealth. For example, it's in Genesis chapter 4 where we find Adam's son, Abel. He's honoring the Lord by sacrificing the firstborn from his flock. And in Genesis chapter 14, we also find Father Abraham giving his tithe to the king of peace and the priest of God most high. In Genesis chapter 31, we find Jacob offering a sacrifice on Mount Gilead as he cried out to the Lord. And in Job chapter 1, we also find Job, he's rising early in the morning every day in order to offer burnt offerings on behalf of his children. Without debate, the Bible is filled with beautiful examples of believers who honored the Lord with their possessions and who worshiped the Lord with the first fruits of their worldly wealth. In light of their examples, well, I'd like to begin our time today by just taking a moment to examine our own lives. And I want to do this by asking, you know, am I following in the footsteps of Abel and Abraham as I honor the Lord with my possessions? Am I pursuing the same path as Jacob and Job as I worship the Lord with the first fruits of my worldly wealth? Or am I still just a stingy Christian who's struggling to to imagine supporting the work of the ministry with the riches that I've received? Am I failing to grasp the value of becoming a gracious giver? And if that's true of you, if this is a struggle that you have, well, it's my hope that this study today will help you to become a believer who is gladly quick to contribute your cash to the ministry of our Messiah. And it's here in our text today where we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually presenting his disciples with a lesson about the spiritual discipline that we commonly call grace giving. As we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that grace giving is practical. Secondly, we'll learn that grace giving is purposeful. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that grace giving is prayerful. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually presenting the people with a lesson about giving. And as you make your way to the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel account, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the Lord Jesus was teaching there in the temple of Jerusalem, and he suddenly found himself surrounded by a group of religious leaders who were determined to diminish the popularity of our Savior in the eyes of the people. And rather than shrinking back in silence, though, our Savior responded by challenging the priests with a parable about the vine dressers. Not only that, but he also challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as the scribes. And he did this by presenting them with tough questions that they were unable to answer, because if they answered honestly, then it would disrupt their whole program. Luke even tells us that the religious leaders were unable to catch him in his words there in the presence of the people, and so they weren't able to have that aha moment, you're busted, and now nobody likes you. They tried to cancel him, but they couldn't. And they actually marveled at his wisdom, and they were so impressed with his spiritual insights that they dared not question him anymore. And instead, they went behind his back, and they worked together to perfect their plot against him. As the religious leaders left him in peace, the 
Lord Jesus then lift up his eyes. And it was at at that moment in time when he saw this procession of people who were placing their offerings in the collection containers located there in the temple treasury. And it's here in our text today where we find the Lord. He's now turning this procession or this, this giving parade into a lesson on giving. And with this as the focus, let's uh, continue to make our way through the book of Luke. We find ourselves here in Luke chapter 21. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. Here we learn that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Luke, he's describing the contrast, a contrast that he noticed as he observes the Israelites placing their free will offerings into these special collection containers, which were located in the temple treasury there in the court of the women. And just to be clear, you know, it'll help you to know that, that the free will offerings that they were, that they were giving there at the temple treasury, these free will offerings were above and beyond the normal tithe. I'm sure we've all heard about tithing and, and there are many Christians who brag about how they keep up their tithe and I tithe and I, you know, well, be careful because according to the law, you know, the tithe is not just 10%. When you add up all of the offerings that they were to give, the tithe actually uh, was a total of 23% of their annual income. And so if you think that you're giving a a biblical tithe by giving 10%, you're about 13% off. It's 23% if you want to be legalistic about it. But that's not what we're talking about here today. We're not talking about the tithe. Here we find Jesus watching the Israelites giving what are called free will offerings. And free will offerings are, get this in the Greek, free will offerings. That's what they are. The instructions for these free will offerings is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 16, where Moses writes, you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. From this, we can see that these free will offerings were given during the feast of weeks and they weren't tithes. No one said they were tributes. And it's important to grasp this. We're not talking about tithing here. We're talking about tributes, which were freely given according to the blessings that each of these individuals had received from the Lord. In other words, this was a gift that was given as a gratuity from the abundance of blessings that the Lord had bestowed upon them. Therefore, well, it only made sense uh, that, you know, those who had been blessed with more would then present their tribute to the Lord in proportion to the abundance that they received. So those who were really wealthy came and brought these elaborate, large gifts, while those who were impoverished brought less. I want to consider how Luke describes this here in our text today. If you would look with me again here at Luke chapter 21, we'll back up and begin reading once again at verse one. Here we learn that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Now, now as we consider what's happening here, we can see that both the rich and the poor were putting in what they could. They were giving their gifts there at the temple treasury. And it's important to understand that the Greek word, which is rendered gift, well, it's used of any present that's given as an expression of honor. When you give a gift, 
in order to honor someone. That's kind of similar to what we're talking about here. And according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the same Greek word, which is rendered gift, well, it was also used to describe the money which was cast into the treasury for the purposes of the temple, as well as for the support of the poor. Yeah, these gifts were given for very practical reasons. The free will offerings were used for the practical purpose of maintaining the upkeep of the temple. Uh, you know, anything that is used, you know, begins to run down and you have to keep it up. If you're a homeowner, then you understand this. You know, the fence starts falling apart and the dishwasher breaks down. And, you know, there's just constant upkeep in owning property. And that's one reason why this, this money was being collected, was just to keep up with uh, the, the, the work there at the temple. And not only that, uh, but this money was also used, to, uh, you know, for the compassionate care of those who were poor. Yeah, they would take a portion of this money and use it for those who were in need. As we consider the practical reasons for these free will offerings, which were given to God there at the temple treasury, well, I want to spend some time considering the way in which the free will offerings that they were giving are very similar to the free will offerings that we've been called to give here at church. And, and the free will offerings that we've been called to give at church, oh, they are to be used in a practical way as we set out to accomplish the ministry of our Messiah. With this as the focus, I want to take some time to consider the grace giving that occurred during the days of the primitive church. And so hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. See, it's here in the second chapter of Acts where we find the very first example of what we call grace giving. And as you make your way to Acts chapter 2, I want to take a moment to point out that the Old Testament law of the tithe, it no longer applies to the church age. Yeah, that, that might be surprising to you. Maybe you grew up in a church tradition where your pastor or your priest was constantly pounding on the concept of the tithe. And I want you to know that the Old Testament law of the tithe no longer applies in the church age. And while I realize that there are many pastors who still encourage Christians to submit to the law of the tithe, I can assure you that we don't find this encouragement presented in the New Testament epistles. And listen, if I found this as, you know, a teaching in the New Testament epistles, that's what I would teach. I don't know better than God. I'm not here to make it up as I go along. If, if the law of the tithe were taught in the New Testament epistles, that's what I would teach. But it's not there. Therefore, there's no biblical reason to think that Christians are called to obey the law of the tithe. At the same time, though, we do find a biblical basis for believing in the continuation of free will offerings, which we would call grace giving. In order to make my case, let's consider Luke's account found here in Acts chapter 2. You would, let's begin reading there at verse 42. Here we learn that the new converts of the Christian faith, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now here in these verses we find Luke describing the faith and the fellowship that was occurring there in the primitive church. And while it's true that they spent their time together studying the scriptures and seeking the Lord through communion and through prayer, it's also true that they were so moved by the gracious gift of forgiveness that they had received that they began to give 
graciously. They actually started liquidating the possessions and properties that they no longer needed. You see, many of these people were sitting on many different properties. So, so it's not like they sold the only house they had, but rather they sold the houses they didn't need or they sold the properties that they, they didn't need any longer and they liquidated the possessions and the property, uh, their properties that they you know, were uh, you know, owning in, in excess so that they could present these free will offerings to the apostles for the very practical purpose of ministry. To further prove my point, I'd like you to flip forward a few chapters. If you would, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. As you arrive there in the fourth chapter of Acts, I just want to draw your attention there to verse 33. It's here in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, where we learn that it was with great power that the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now here in these verses, we find Luke, he's once again describing the way in which the first century saints there in the primitive church, they actually cashed in on their assets. They, they, those who had properties and houses sold the ones they weren't using. And then they took the, the, the finances, they took the money from, from those sales and they used it to support the work of the ministry there. And it's important to understand that they, uh, you know, they took these free will offerings. They didn't cast the, the, the money into the collection containers there at the temple treasury. No, instead, Luke informs us that they placed these financial gifts at the feet of the apostles. They didn't go to the temple treasury. They went to the apostles, the leaders of the church, and they placed this money at the feet of the apostles. And in light of this example, I believe that this does provide us with a biblical basis for what many have called grace giving. Just to be clear, grace giving refers to the financial offerings that we give here at church so that the leaders of the church are able to accomplish the work of the ministry. And while this most certainly includes the benevolence that we distribute to those who are struggling with financial difficulties, the free will offerings that we give here at church are also used for many practical purposes, including, you know, the, uh, the, the monthly bills like the rent and, and the electric bill and, and, and the resources that we use for children's ministry and the cleaning supplies that we use to clean the building. And, and not only that, but according to Paul, the free will offerings that we give here at church should also be used for the practical purpose of financially supporting the full-time staff. As a matter of fact, it's actually found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's beginning at verse 11 where Paul declares, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel." Or in other words, Paul's letting us know that those who have been called to full-time ministry... 
Well, those who have been called to full-time ministry should receive the financial support necessary so that they can continue to engage in full-time ministry. Now, Paul himself, he took the time to continue making tents so that he could raise his own money so that he could continue his missionary work. But he's letting us know that the, the, the correct example is to financially support the full-time ministers as we benefit from their ministries. As we consider the reason for why the Lord called Christians to support the work of full-time ministers, there, there should be no doubt that grace giving is a very practical way for Christians to pool their money together so that we can fund the ministries that our Messiah is calling us to accomplish. Uh, we're called to pool our money together so that we can use that money for rent, for bills, for children's ministry you know, resources, for cleaning products, for all the things that we want to accomplish here. And the more money we pool together, the more things we can accomplish uh, according to the calling of Christ. And so our giving is used in a very practical way. And while it's true that grace giving is practical, grace giving should also be purposeful on our part. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, in order to explain what I mean, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 2. Here we find Luke's account of the widow who gave everything that she owned. And, and with this as the focus, let's back up and take another look at the text before us today. I want to begin reading once again at verse 1. Here we learn that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Now, as we take another look at these verses, we must not fail to notice that you know, the people who were there at the temple treasury, they were purposefully placing their gifts into the collection containers. And, and in order to prove my point here and, and, and to consider you know, what this all means, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which is rendered put or putting, it's, it's found in, in all four of these verses. This Greek word was used of those who place something down, not with force, and yet with careful attention for a specific purpose. For example, when I put donuts down, you know, it's, it's for, a, it's for a, a specific, not with force, you know, I'm gentle with those donuts, you know, but I put them down as fast as, as possible and, and for a purpose because I'm hungry, you know, so... But the Israelites here, they're, they're putting down this money. They're casting it into these collection containers for a purpose. The Israelites who were casting their coins into those collection containers, they were giving attention to the offerings that, as they gave the amount that they purposed to give. And not only did they give the amount that they purposed to give, but they, they also had a purposeful intention for why they were giving the gifts that they gave. That being the case, I want to take some time to consider the possible purposes that some have suggested uh, as these people put their free will offerings into the treasury. Some have speculated that the rich people who were putting their gifts into the treasury were really just there for the show. There are those who have suggested that, you know, there was pomp and circumstance and there was a procession and a parade as these wealthy people came in with their, their large gifts and trumpets were playing. And it was all just kind of like this, hey, look at me, look how much money I have. And this is how God has blessed me. And so I'm going to give all this money, right? And, and that might be the case. Maybe there were some wealthy people who were giving with this sort of self-glorification. Uh, and, and, and if that's the case, then the, the purpose was for personal glory. Therefore, it would have been a profane purpose. 
There were also those who insist that, that uh, the widow who gave all the money that she had, these two little mites, you know, the uh, very small amount of money, you know, uh, there are those who, who suggest that, you know, her purpose was so that she would look good in the eyes of the scribes. Yeah, there are those who believe that this widow purposed to give her last two mites because she had allowed the religious leaders of Israel to manipulate her mind and out of a, out of a legalistic desire to be approved she gave all the money that she had. This speculation is actually based on the challenge that Jesus previously presents to the scribes. I'll remind you, it was back in the end of Luke chapter 20. It's verse 47. There the Lord Jesus described the scribes as those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And then from there, it goes straight into this story about the widow who gave two mites. With that, it is possible that this widow proposed to give everything that she had because of the legalistic teachings of the scribes, and and maybe she just was trying to be acceptable in the eyes of those religious leaders. At the same time, though, I'd also like to suggest that maybe the wealthy people who were giving large amounts of money, they just wanted to glorify God. We are told here in this text that they gave these gifts to God. And so maybe it was just that they wanted to bless God who had blessed them with so much. And it's also possible that this widow had purpose to put every mite that she owned into the collection containers because she truly believed that the Lord is the one who was able to supply for all of her needs tomorrow. If that's the case, then this widow who gave all the livelihood that she had to her name, well, she provides us with a perfect example of what it means to become a believer who is presenting free will offerings with purposeful faith. With this example in mind, let's take some time to consider how grace giving then ought to be purposeful on our part. And with this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Lord is less interested in the amount of the gift you give, and he's more interested in the heart of the giver. Grasp that for a moment. The Lord is less interested in the amount of the gift you give, and he's more interested in the heart or the purpose of the giver. In other words, those who give their gifts for all the wrong reasons, uh, they're, they're failing to realize that God sees the purpose. God can look into the heart. He knows the thoughts and the intents that are found hidden in our hearts. Therefore, the the wealthy person or the poor person who gives for the wrong reasons, God knows. And so if you give a a huge gift or if you give two mites, if the reason is wrong, God's unimpressed. Therefore, we would do well to realize that the purpose for our our free will offerings, it's more important than the actual amount of the offering. To prove my point, let's consider the way that Paul explains it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look with me there at verse 5. Here Paul writes, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Corinth to realize that the heart of the giver is always more important than the amount of the gift. If you give a lot of money for the wrong reason, God's unimpressed. And if you give just a little bit of money, but for the right reasons, God applauds this. Now, there are some who give their gifts out of necessity because they feel some sort of religious obligation to give. Like there are many Christians who go to those churches where the pastor's pounding the pulpit and preaching the tithe and all these sorts of things. And so they feel this obligation to give. This is my religious duty that I must give. And God's not impressed with this giving out of necessity. Others give their gifts with a covetous goal for convincing God to give them more. So they give in order to get And that's for this reason that Paul encouraged every Christian to to realize that, you know, we ought to be giving not out of a grudging necessity or or an obligation to get more. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Here's how they put it. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. In other words, there's no religiously required amount that you must give when you come to church. Whatever we purpose to give, that's what we ought to give. And we should make sure that we're giving with a cheerful heart. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word cheerful, which is found there in verse 7, it's actually translated from the Greek word hilaros. Hilaros. This is actually the Greek root of our English word hilarious. Yeah, we're, we're to give with hilarious joy. And according to Paul, the Lord loves it when we purposely give our gifts with a hilarious heart. In other words, you know, whenever you give that money that you give, you ought to, you ought to give it, you know, with hilarity. And whether that's a really small gift, you're like, I can't believe how small this is. This is ridiculous, you know, two cents, you know, this, and you can just laugh at it. You know, or one billion dollars, you know, and you can just laugh at how ridiculous that is. And there's no, there's not enough zeros in my bank to cover this, but I'm going to write it anyway. You know, and then checks are bouncing all over the place and you're just laughing, right? It's hilarious. Yeah, we, we need to give cheerfully. It's also interesting to note that the Greek word hilaros speaks of the cheerful joy that prompts us to accomplish something as soon as we can. I'm sure that uh, there's all always those things that we dread to do, right? There's lots of things that we dread to do, and it's for this reason that, you know, we drag our feet when it's time to do it until we're finally forced to accomplish that task or pay that bill or, or, you know, write that tax check to the IRS so that they can spend that money on all kinds of ridiculous things. Yeah. Yeah, we drag our feet on those things that we hate doing. And, And why put off tomorrow what we can actually put off the next day, you know what I'm saying? But those things that we love to do, we can't wait to do them, right? Those things that we're excited about, those things that bring us joy, we can't wait. Uh, it's, 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 a cheer, it's a point of cheerfulness that, that we, we get to do this thing, right? And that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Give with hilarity. Give cheerfully. The Christian ought to be filled with this type of cheerful joy as we purposefully present our offerings here at church as we imagine how God is going to use this money in the context of our local church to accomplish so much more ministry. It ought to be a, a point of joy in our lives. And, and if you're still wondering, well, how much should we give it? If the tithe isn't the, the, the way to go about this, then, then what's the amount and, and how should we figure this out? And with that, 
I want to continue to consider the encouragement that Paul presents here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look with me there. We'll pick up at verse 7. Here again, Paul declares, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, if there ever were a pregnant statement, this one would be bearing twins anytime soon. But Paul here is encouraging the Christians in Corinth to to give whatever they purpose in their hearts to give. And from this, we can see the, that the law of the tithe no longer applies. If, if the law of the tithe still applied, this would be the perfect time for Paul to say, oh, and don't forget your tithe. But he doesn't. He says, you give whatever you purpose in your heart to give. Be purposeful in what you're giving. Paul also then goes on to present the rule of reciprocity, which is to say that those who give sparingly, will go on to reap sparingly, and those who give bountifully and liberally will also be enriched in everything for all liberality as the Lord supplies us with everything we need. Now, please don't misunderstand the point that Paul was making because, you know, it would be easy for us to think that Paul was encouraging Christians to give more, to get more. Sad to say that there are many prosperity preachers who twist this text and they do this by using these verses to encourage people to send more money so that they might receive more money. Yeah, yeah, they get on television and they say, you send us your your seed of faith and God will respond by giving it back to you a hundredfold. Listen, if they really believe that, they, they would be sending their own money to their own ministries so they could get their own refunds, right? But they don't do that. They want you to send them your money so they can buy their jet planes and their fancy cars and their gated community homes. Don't fall for their tricks. Paul's not saying, give more to get more. No, no. He's just saying that God's going to bless you, and so you should bless him back, and when you try to bless God back, you're not going to out-bless God. He's going to bless you more. But those who tell us to give more to get more, well, Paul already addressed this profane purpose back in verse 5. It's there where he actually discourages us from giving as a grudging obligation. And when you look at the Greek there, what that means is that it's wrong to give from a greedy desire to have more. I like the way that the scholars who created the Hebrew names version of the Bible rendered verse 5. Here's how they put it. I thought it necessary, therefore, to entreat the brothers that they would go before to you and arrange ahead of time the generous gift that you promised before that the same might be ready as a matter of generosity and not of what? Greediness. Another uh, version renders it covetousness. 
If you're giving because of greediness, you want more. Or if you're giving because of covetousness, because you think that this is going to manipulate the mind of God because I gave you this, God, now you got to give me more back. Paul's saying, no, that's a profane purpose. That shouldn't be the purpose for your giving. Those who present their free will offerings with a greedy desire to get more from God are giving with a profane purpose. And with that being the case, Paul encouraged believers to cheerfully give with generosity and with liberality, all the while realizing that the Lord is the one who supplies us with everything we need to worship him in this way. We're just stewards of this money that he's given. We're just stewards of what he's blessed us with. And now we're just being called to take what he gave us and turn around and use a portion of it to honor him. And listen, if the Lord leads us to give our last two mites, then we can give what we have cheerfully, all the while knowing that the Lord is the one who makes all grace abound toward us so that we'll always have all sufficiency in all things, including an abundance for every good work. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, grace giving is not only a practical way to support the work of the ministry, and grace giving should not only be purposeful on our part as we make sure that we're giving for the right reasons, but then finally, grace giving ought to be prayerful as we prayerfully seek the Lord for you know how, what, where, and why we should give. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 21. Here we find the Lord Jesus presenting his disciples with a lesson from the widow's mites. I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 3. Here again, Jesus declares, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Now, as we take one last look at these verses, we must not fail to notice the point that the Lord Jesus is actually making. He's informing his audience here that the poor widow actually gave more than all the wealthy people who came and gave from their abundance. Now, listen, those who were rich gave a greater sum. Those who were wealthy actually put in more money than she did. So the sum of what they gave was greater. Yet at the same time, the Lord is honoring this widow for putting in the two mites that she had because this is all the money that she had. The wealthy people had more money to rely on for their daily needs tomorrow, whereas the poor widow actually gave all the money that she had and would have to completely rely on God for her needs tomorrow. I like the way that the scholars who created the English standard version of the Bible rendered the words of Jesus. They put it like this. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She put in all that she had to live on. The poor widow gave more than all of them because she gave everything. There was nothing else for her to rely on. There was nothing else that she had to sustain her livelihood on the next day. Now listen, this would have been a perfect opportunity for Christ Jesus to teach socialism. This would have been a great opportunity for him to say, look, you know, guys, you're blowing it here. We need to establish equity, you know, and and you guys have more and you guys have less. And so we have to, you know, rob your money and, and then redistribute it to those who have less. And this would have been the perfect opportunity to teach socialism. He he could have condemned the rich for hoarding their wealth. 
He could have lifted up the, the, the impoverished woman to say, hey, look, we need equity of outcome, not just equity of opportunity. He could have instructed them and commanded them to redistribute their wealth so that those who were impoverished might become middle class, so that everyone might be middle class, but he didn't. He didn't do that. Those who insist that Jesus was a socialist, uh, they, don't, they don't really address passages like this. He celebrated this impoverished woman who was willing to give everything that she had. As we consider her incredible example and the way that the Lord Jesus celebrated the faith of this impoverished woman, I can't help but to think of something that James wrote in James chapter 2. It's there where James declares, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Christian, listen, the Lord has a purpose in the poverty he allows. I know that might be hard to hear, especially if you're broke. But the Lord has a purpose in the poverty that he allows. And while it's true that the the church has been called to provide for the members who are struggling to pay their bills, and we certainly set aside a line item in in our budget so that we can provide for the members of our church who are struggling to pay the bills. Listen, it's also true, though, that many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ because they found themselves in a time of financial need and nobody would help them and the only place they had to look was up. And you better believe that the Lord allowed that moment of poverty in their life so that those people might get saved. You don't think that God can use a person's poverty to bring them to a place of faith? And listen, I get it. We've got people in the world today who want to solve every problem. I do too. I'm, I'm all about, let's, let's, solve, let's solve all the problems, right? But those who are promising utopia on the path of socialism will fail to accomplish the utopia they promise. The redistribution of wealth results eventually in equal amounts of nothing for everyone. It's happened that way time and time and time again without fail. And trying it one more time isn't going to produce a different result. With that being the case, you know, those who promise utopia by the redistribution of wealth, well, yeah, it it brings everybody to the middle class at, at at a point until there's no more money to steal. And then everyone is impoverished. Listen, the Lord didn't come to solve our financial issues. He came to solve our spiritual issue. And there's a utopia that the Lord has promised, but that day will eventually come when Jesus returns. Let's not look to the politicians to try to create some fake utopia as we wait for Jesus Christ. It won't work. With that, I encourage you to realize that the Lord has a purpose in the poverty that he allows today. 
And in order to further grasp my point, I want to consider the incredible faith of the impoverished Christians who were at a church in Macedonia. So with this as the focus, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And as you make your way to the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that Paul was actually helping the Christians there in Corinth to grasp what it means to be a gracious giver who's willing to use their worldly wealth in order to help fund the commission of Christ Jesus. And in order to make his case, Paul actually pointed to the impoverished Christians at the church in Macedonia who, despite their great poverty, became a beautiful example of what it means to give with a heart filled with grace. With this as the focus, let's turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you by the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's reminding the Christians there in Corinth about the incredible generosity of the believers who were there in in Macedonia. And according to Paul, their generous support was given despite the fact that they themselves were enduring a great trial of affliction, which resulted in their deep poverty. They were impoverished. And yet, despite their deep poverty, they freely gave everything that they could and even beyond what they could. And the reason why was because they first gave themselves to the Lord. Grasp that for a moment. Before they gave everything they could, they first gave themselves to the Lord. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verse 5. They put it like this. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Before the impoverished Macedonians became gracious givers, you know, the kind of givers who are ready to give the shirt off their back or their last two mites, you know, but before they became those kinds of Christians, they first gave themselves entirely to God by becoming dedicated, devoted disciples. And it was in this state of dedicated devotion that those impoverished Christians in Macedonia then showed their support for the missionary work of Paul and his companions. And they did this by prayerfully presenting their free will offerings according to the leading of the Lord. They gave what the Lord led them to give. And with this as a spiritual standard, then Paul turns around and encourages the Christians in Corinth who had an abundance of everything to follow their example. He's basically moving on in, in our text here and, and says, hey, why can't you be like, more like the Macedonians, Corinthians? Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look with me there beginning at verse 7. Here Paul declares, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. What grace? The kind of grace that led the Macedonians to give what they couldn't give you know, uh, in, in their poverty. He's saying, I want you to abound in this kind of grace, the grace giving as well. 
And in verse 8, he says, I speak not by commandment, but I'm testifying, uh, I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Here in these verses, we find Paul challenging the Christians there in Corinth by helping them to realize that, yeah, they were abounding in almost every Christian discipline, and yet they were still failing to grasp the value of becoming gracious givers. And Paul not only points to the Macedonians, but points to Jesus Christ himself and says, remember how Jesus became poor for you, right? So that you could become rich, spiritually speaking? Yeah, that's what you ought to be doing by way of giving. Paul encouraged them to consider the example of those impoverished Macedonians so that they might give themselves to the Lord entirely, which includes their worldly wealth. You know, there's a lot of Christians who are ready to give God everything except their bank account. God, just take my life. Just take me and use me. But don't touch my bank account. Don't touch my savings. And Paul says, no, no, no. You give yourself entirely to God first. And then do whatever he tells you to do. Even if it means giving your last two mites. In light of his encouragement, we can see that the dedicated, devoted disciple of the Lord is going to become a gracious giver according to the leading of the Lord. And, and in order to more fully, fully grasp my, my final point here, you know, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. You see, it's here in the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel account where we find the Lord Jesus. He's taking the time to address the concerns of those who, who were completely concerned about the cost of serving our Savior. And, and I'm here to tell you that, that yeah, there's a cost. You know, becoming a Christian is free, but becoming a servant, there's a cost. I remember after becoming a believer, I began to realize that everything that I was making money doing was uh, displeasing to the Lord. You know, I was I was an artist for the Austin Chronicle. I was a lead singer of a you know punk country band, and and uh, you know a lot of the things that I was doing in the world, it was just nothing pleasing to the Lord. And yet, this was my income. This was my bread and butter. Bread and butter, man, I'm hungry. But, uh, <laughs> but listen, I, I started realizing as the Lord started convicting my heart about the, the band that I was the lead singer for and the, the, the art that I was creating for the Chronicle and other, other companies, you know, I, I realized that I, I can't continue doing this stuff. It's not pleasing to the Lord. And yeah, every time that I gave something up, I was taking a pay cut. But every time I took that pay cut, the Lord was there with something better until, until he made me the best pastor in the world. So, you know, and, and <laughs> come on, come on. No. No, I'm, I'm joking. Second best. But anyway, so, but I'm here to tell you that there's a cost to becoming a servant of the Lord. And sometimes it's taking a pay cut. And when the Lord says, hey, quit doing that. Or, or sometimes it's, hey, take that money that you've saved up for so long and give it to this, to this ministry. Sadly, so many of us are trusting in our investments. Many of us are relying on our retirement plan, thinking that, well, I got to have this or else, you know, because God could never provide for me. And so I have to make sure, I have to do for me. Some are pinching every penny in order to increase our savings, all the while failing to realize, you know, that we would eventually have a president who would completely collapse our economy. 
no names, but we're biding our time until, you know, the, the next president comes along. But uh, Jesus put all this into perspective. And if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 6, it's beginning there at verse 19 where Jesus declares, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where presidents break in and steal and, and, and lay. I'm sorry, my eyes are getting bad. Thieves, thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just to be clear, you, listen, I don't believe that Jesus is opposed to us having a savings account. I'm not here to say you shouldn't have a savings account. You shouldn't have investments. And that's not my point. Jesus, I believe here, is helping his audience to understand that those who fail to invest their money in the kingdom of God, they eventually realize that their return on their investment didn't really transfer into a heavenly bank account. You can't take it with you. And and if you, you know, have, have, you know, a portfolio that's worth a billion dollars, that billion dollars goes to someone else the minute you die. Doesn't transfer in heaven. Therefore, the Lord encouraged his audience to place a greater value on our heavenly investments in the way that we use our money for the glory of God. With this as the goal, let's consider what Jesus says here in Matthew 6, verse 24. Here he declares, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon? What is that? Well, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which was translated mammon, can also be rendered money or worldly wealth. The scholars who created the New Living Translation, they put the, uh, the Greek in this way. You cannot serve both God and money. The scholars who created the New American Standard Bible render the words of Jesus in this way. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's right. We can't serve our Savior while also serving our savings account. And while it's not wrong to have a savings account, don't serve it. Because if that's your master, then Jesus is not. It's for this reason that Jesus encouraged us to spend time seeking the guidance of God through prayer so that we know how to properly use our finances. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 6, we'll pick up at verse 31 where Jesus declares, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first H&R Block and, oh wait, that's not what it says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. When it comes to our investments, when it comes to our financial portfolio, Who are we seeking first? Our financial advisor or our savior? When it comes to the amount of money that we save versus the amount of money we give at church, are are we seeking the kingdom of God first 
Are, are we prayerfully asking the Lord to lead us so that we might give the free will offerings that he wants us to give? And if so, then I would ask you this. Would you give your last two mites if the Lord told you to? I'm not saying that's easy to answer. Because imagine for a moment, you've got two dimes to rub together. And the Lord says, drop it in the clutch container. How difficult would that be? But if he told us to give our last two dimes, would we trust him enough to meet our daily needs tomorrow? When it comes to grace giving, you know, I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter three. There he declares, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. King Solomon is saying, you're not going to outgive God. Try as you might. You will not outgive God. And those who honor the Lord with our possessions and with our finances, the Lord says, oh, I can trust this person with more resources. And you better believe that he will. It's more important for us to honor the Lord with our income than it is to store up treasure here on earth as we become stingy saints who withhold the blessings that God wants to pour out on others from our bank account. It's not my place to tell you how much to give. I'm not even going to try to even pretend to know anything about finances. But I know that we've been called to support the work of the ministry here at our church. And, and, and so I encourage every Christian to spend time praying and asking God for that guidance. We need to pray and ask the Lord to direct us so that we might graciously give the amount that the Lord is leading each of us to contribute here at our fellowship of faith. And let's seek first the guidance of God because prayer will provide us with a proper perspective on grace giving. I would also remind you of something that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16. It's verses 1 and 2 where Paul declared, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week. I think we call that Sunday. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. According to Paul, we've been called to collect these free will offerings on the first day of the week. And, and you know, some churches do this by passing a plate and, and, and they, they take up a collection at some point in time, typically during the praise portion. Of, uh, and, 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 you know, I understand that, you know, giving ought to be worshipful. And so the churches that pass the plate during, you know, one of the worship songs, and I, I get all of that, but I, I just personally don't believe in it myself. I do believe that giving ought to be worshipful. I just, you know, I remember going to church as an unbeliever and watching that plate, you know, come on by and I'm not giving nothing. So I, I wrote a little note and I just said, I notice you have a jet and I have a busted Toyota, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and keep my money, you know. I get it, you know, when I was an unbeliever and I visited a church and the plate came by, I just, it just felt awkward to me and, and, and I've carried that into, you know, to, to the church. I, I don't want anyone feeling awkward, you know, with a, a plate coming by. And so we provide a few different ways to give, and that's just the way I go about it. I just don't want anyone feeling obligated to give because God doesn't want you to give out of a grudging obligation or out of necessity. He wants us to be cheerful givers. 
And so we provided a couple of different ways, including the collection containers there in the alcove of the auditorium. But regardless, you know, the, the fact is that Paul tells us to take up the, the collection on the first day of the week. And that is what we ought to do as believers. On the first day of the week, when we come to church, we ought to give the money that God has called us to give. And when it comes to the free will offerings that we give here at our church, it's important to remember that grace giving is a practical way for us to support the work of the ministry here at our church. And, and I can assure you that we use the offerings to fund the work of the ministry, which includes, you know, the practical expenses of monthly bills, as well as, 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 well as you know, charitable benevolence for those who are poor and, and financial support for the full-time staff. And so that's how we use uh, the money here at this church. And grace giving should also be purposeful on our part as we make sure that we have the right reasons for why we give. Because remember, God loves a cheerful giver who joyfully gives with, you know, with, with bountiful generosity. And finally, grace giving should also be prayerful as we prayerfully seek our Savior for the godly guidance we need regarding the amount of our offerings. And at the end of the day, well, it's just important for us to remember that we're simply stewards of the resources that the Lord has entrusted to us. Therefore, as we've graciously received every good and perfect gift from the Lord, let's make sure that we also use a portion of that as, as we become those believers who want to glorify the God who has saved us with the free will offerings that we call grace giving. Let's pray.